16. And, and really it's the first verse that I want you to hold on to. What God says about himself. Then we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. So the first part is uh, from Genesis 15. And then we're going to turn in the New Testament to where we've been looking in 1 Peter. And the first verse of Genesis 15 is, is kind of the promise you want to hold on to. The whole chapter is about God's establishing a covenant with Abraham. But listen to God's words we find here in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Excuse me. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said, Bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in him. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the uh, Hittites, the Parasites, the, the, the Raphaim, uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Now, before we get to the New Testament, you've got to think about these things. 
that very first verse, as I mentioned, is a verse you want to pay attention to. God says, I am your very great reward. I am your shield and your very great reward. God was telling Abraham that he himself is a possession of his people. God says, I am your God and you shall be my people. God says to us, I am your possession and you are my possession. Because when you have God, you've got everything. You don't need anything else. Because God himself has given himself to you. And the way that God seals it is with this covenant uh, ceremony here at the end of chapter 15. Because what God is doing is as this smoking fire pot and flaming sword pass between the pieces, it's representing God going between the pieces. So God is the one sealing the covenant. And God is doing that calling judgment upon himself. This is amazing. Calling judgment upon himself if he doesn't fulfill the promise. If God doesn't do the promise, he'll be like those dead animals. But of course, God's going to fulfill his promise. He's God. So the promise of the covenant is sealed by God. And Abraham believes God. It's counted to his righteousness. Now, turn over to the New Testament to the book of First Peter. Now we've got to read uh, down to uh, verse, uh, verse 12. I mean, we should read the whole first chapter, but uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses of First Peter. Because that's what we want to be thinking about. Again, this is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven who by, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
he was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels <coughs> long to look. Amen. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Our God, your word is so amazing, so full, that uh, we have a hard time even scratching the surface. Uh, even with years of looking at things, uh, we find your word always filling us with wonder and thanksgiving and praise because the living God is speaking to us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is present to give us the understanding that we wouldn't find in ourselves and that you, by your Holy Spirit, enable this word to be open to us that we might rejoice in it. We pray that you would do this for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you've been around me, you know I like to pace back and forth like Pete. So this is going to be a little limitation here, trying to sit in. And I'm not a rabbi, <laughs> Warren, uh, but uh, you're going to have to bear with me because my head was just starting to spin. And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't last very long. Um, now, this is for parents to tell their young children later on. <laughs> As a sermon illustration you can hold on to. Um, when I was growing up, my dad bought me a bicycle at a police auction. A uh, bicycle with uh, those big balloon tires. It had uh, green, green with uh, white stripes on it and a coaster brake on it. It was my first bike, and he took me out behind the school to the big parking lot on a Saturday, and uh, he was going to teach me how to ride my bike. And so he got me on it, balancing, and he's holding on to the seat, and he starts running and tells me to pedal, and I keep pedaling. And then there comes a point where he lets go and he just says, keep pedaling. And I learned to ride my bike that way. But is that what God does with us in our Christian life? Does God get us to a certain point and then he just lets go? And he says, keep pedaling. Well, parents, you better tell your kids, no. <laughs> God holds on to us our whole lives long. He never lets us go. Remember that? He never lets us go. That's a good thing. Because we go through all kinds of things in our lives that, that test our faith. A family that uh, Joni and I knew, the dad was going with their oldest daughter to the dump. They were in the trash. On the way to the dump, he had a heart attack 
and died driving the car. She grabbed the wheel, got the car off the road, and uh, called 911. And uh, the father was dead by the time EMTs arrived. Do you think their faith was being tested that day? Some of you have had your faith tested, haven't you? You ended up in the ER, and somebody you love is there going through the, the test to try and figure out what's going on, and you're waiting, 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 wondering what's the diagnosis going to be. Some of you have gone through things that have tested your faith, like losing a spouse, losing a child, having a miscarriage, losing a job, seeing a marriage go south. Our faith is tested in all kinds of ways because here we are in a world that's fallen. And we ourselves have fallen. And we are dealing with the effects of sin in a world that surrounds us sometimes with puzzling things that, that challenge our faith. And Scripture tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction are part of what it means to believe in this book and what God says in this book. And it seems sometimes like our faith is shrinking before our eyes when these things start to happen. And we say, why is this happening to me? Why are these things going on? Why is my spouse died, my parents died? Why have I lost my job? We find ourselves asking, is God good? If he's good, why is he letting this stuff happen? And that faith seems to shrink and shrink and shrink. Well, for me, 1 Peter is one of the most encouraging books that, that I've ever studied, preached through, tried to memorize some verses in. And probably some of the most encouraging verses of all, of all are verses 6 and 7. Now we've been looking at 1 Peter for a while, gone through the first verses that set out the picture Peter's writing to what he calls the exiles, the elect exiles, the chosen exiles, the ones who have been scattered throughout these regions of Asia Minor, what we would call today Turkey, the provinces of the Roman Empire. They've been scattered like seeds out there, and they're separated from one another, just a few in this city and a few in that city, and it seems like the church isn't very big, and the Roman Empire is extremely big, huge and powerful, and they're in the midst of it. So he's writing to them how they can live in this day and time, just like us, living, we might feel, in a culture that's increasingly pagan, not just secular, but paganized, where we hardly recognize it. If you grew up like some of us a long time ago and the 
days of leave it to beaver and so forth. You consider where we are today, it just makes your head spin. You hardly imagine that this, this could ever happen in America, but it has. And now we're going to uh, look at how what Peter tells us has been given to us, verses 3 to 5, how it actually impacts our lives. Because we're going to look now at verses 6 and 7. Those are the verses we're going to look at. And what we're going to do is take these verses, you might say, in pieces. You might think of uh, a meal where you have a little appetizer, and then you have a salad, and you have an entree, and you have dessert. So you have the various stages of the meal. And we're going to look at these verses, taking them apart, and chewing on them a little bit each time seeing how, as, as Peter tells us, that we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, undefiled, it's reserved in heaven for us. And we're being kept, if you are a Christian, you're being kept by the power of God for a revelation of all those things in the final day when Jesus comes back. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 then. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you be grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the English Standard Version has a phrase, and it's tested genuineness of your faith that uh, will come to as being, for me, the kind of crux, the thing I hold on to most carefully. The faith we have is a faith that God himself has revealed. It's not a man-made faith. It's a faith that we're looking at from the vantage point of those who've come to believe this because of the almighty power of God, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. But not everything that God has promised to us is in hand. When I was growing up, we would go camping every summer. This was my, my family's big, big summer vacation. One week in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, Shandor National Park. And uh, I loved camping. It was it was the treat that I looked forward to every year. We had a big box in the, the top of our barn where we kept all our camping gear. And almost as soon as my dad said we're going to go camping in a week, I would be ready to run to the barn, open up that box, and start to paw through all the camping gear and, and look for the canteens and the tents and tent poles and cook kits and and cots and sleeping bags and everything else. Uh, and uh, I couldn't get it out because I would just pile it up in a mess on the floor, but I kind of sorted it out so I knew what was there. And then my mom would start to gather food together to put in uh, the cooler we had. It was true ice box where we put ice in it. Uh, 
and she'd get the canned goods, the beans, and, and the other things uh, that she'd take along for camping, and the, the canned things that she'd can. And she'd gather them all together and get them in boxes, and I'd help her to do it. Sometimes we'd pick fresh stuff from the garden to take along, corn, squash, and tomatoes to take along. Uh, and then my dad would say, well, this is Friday. You can help me put the car top carrier on so we can start to put the stuff in the car top carrier. So I I couldn't do much because I was little, but I would try to help him carry it out and, and get on top of the car. And then I'd start running up to the top of the car, bar to bar, and start bringing stuff down uh, for him to put up there. And then we get the car on the Next morning, all the food's in the car, all the camping gear's in the car, and we go out on Route 28, but we were never camping. We had everything we needed, but we were never camping. Because we'd get out on 28, and we'd drive down 28, and then we'd go through Sperryville, Virginia. We'd come up to Skyline Drive, but we weren't camping. We were miles away from the camping site, but, but we had everything we needed. But we weren't camping. It wasn't happening yet. And we drive until we came to Big Meadows. We check in, we look around for a camp spot, and we find just the camp spot for us. And we pull in and open everything up and get the camp gear down. And we had come. It was in hand. We had a whole week to hiking. Uh, to sleep in tents, uh, to, to go down to the spring and get water, uh, to go up to camp store and get some marshmallows and chocolate for s'mores and everything else. It took all that longing for me to get to that spot. Because it wasn't there until we had arrived. And all the things that God's promised you are not yet in hand, are they? You don't yet have everything that God has promised you. You're waiting for it. And you're living by faith that it will be yours someday. This is what uh, Peter talks about in this. In this waiting time, you rejoice. Now, the word that he uses for rejoicing is a word that means to exuberantly, overwhelmingly, overflowingly be excited and rejoice in what God's done. You know, one of the big problems that we have as Christians in our witnessing to other people is that we seem to be very kind of solemn, unhappy people. If you just think about it, if you are a believer, the holy God has forgiven your sins forever. Not just one or two, but he's forgiven all your sins. The eternal God has promised you an eternal life that will be with him forever. You will never face 
death again. You face physical death once, and then that's done. There's no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no mourning. It's all gone. If you are a Christian, you will have the privilege of seeing Jesus as your Savior, Lord, friend, and Redeemer. If you are a Christian, you will be in the presence of God, never driven away, never cast away, never told, you failed, you missed it, you can't be here anymore. If you are a Christian, you will receive all the promises that God made to you in Jesus Christ. And why aren't we more joyful? Why aren't we exuberantly rejoicing in the blessings that we have? But we aren't. Maybe we need to think about that. So we are to rejoice with joy that's unspeakable and full of glory even before the trial is over. <laughs> even before that dark river of death is crossed. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. You know, when you're in that dentist chair, you feel like they're drilling it's going to go on forever, don't you? You just can't wait for it to end. But that drilling ends. It doesn't last forever. We think that the troubles of this world, the sorrows that we face in this world, go on forever. But they don't. They do not last forever. There is going to come a day when everything is over. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul terms it our slight, momentary affliction. Does it seem slight or momentary when you're in the midst of affliction? When a spouse dies, you think you're never going to get over the pain of losing that spouse. Or when a child dies, or when a spouse dies, you think you're never going to get over the pain of that experience. But these are slight, momentary afflictions because there is something better ahead. There is an end to it. This little while will end. Now, there is a little while that continues forever. For the wicked, the little while of this world's pleasures is truly a little while. And it will end. Those who are unbelieving and separated from God for all eternity will find never-ending judgment and wrath. 
never ending judgment and wrath. That day will come and it will be an endless day. How we should pray for our unsaved family members, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. Pleading with God to redeem them from coming to face that awful day. Because the sufferings of this world are necessary. Look what he says. In this, you rejoice exuberantly, though now for a little while, if necessary. Now, we wish it wasn't necessary. You know, parents sometimes tell their children, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. And the child never never thinks that's true. <laughs> they never think that, oh, yeah, yeah, right. But in his fatherly wisdom, God is more concerned, get this, more concerned about our character than our comfort. He's more concerned about our character than our comfort. And that will mean that sometimes these things are necessary for us. We don't like them at all. We don't like going through these experiences. We wish that God had another way around it. But in his fatherly wisdom, God says, no. There is a an old Scottish preacher, one of the good guys who was a bishop. <laughs> named Robert Layton. And he once said, it is the battle which tries the soldier and the storm the pilot. When they stuck me in a HU-1D and said, here's an M60, it wasn't until I had to fire that 160 that I knew what it was going to be like. I had no clue about, I, I, I tell you, this is true. I had never fired an uh, M60 until we were in combat. Never fired it. Not in training, not in practice. It wasn't until the actual moment came that you know what you're going to do. A pilot who never sails rough waters doesn't know how he's going to handle the gale. He doesn't know what it's going to be like to reef in the sails until he goes through those tempests. We don't know circumstances until we face the difficulties, do we? We don't know how sufficient God will be until our faith is tested in the trials of this world, do we? My friend Andy Silly had preached on the resurrection many times. But he told me that it wasn't until he preached it at his mother's funeral and he said that he believed in the resurrection and the life that he said, I believe in the resurrection and the life. He believed in the resurrection and the life, but he didn't believe in the resurrection and the life until his mother was dead. And he had to say, 
I believe in the resurrection and the life. So if necessary, because God knows that we need to prove these things that we say are true. He says, if you have been grieved by various trials, literally, if you have been in the heaviness of sorrow, the weight of sorrow, things weigh us down. They are not simple, are they? The things that we go through. When you're in an ER with a family member, and you're wondering is, is what they're doing going to help him or her survive? When you're wondering that, your faith is being tested and you're being you're grieving or in heaviness because of the various trials. You're still supposed to rejoice. Those things exist. The sorrow and the joy exist side by side. And, and if any of you have been through a cancer or a heart attack or or some, some stress like that, you know that you can have joy in the circumstance, can you? can't you? You can have joy because you see that person you love in that casket, and you know that they're with Jesus, as certainly as you are standing there, you know that they are with Jesus, that they're delivered from this world. You know that if you lose that that spouse or that child or whoever it may be in that moment, you know that God is there with you, present with you. Those things coexist. The trials come. They come sometimes because of our sins, sometimes because Satan is tempting us, sometimes because we're just in a fallen world. All these things happen. But it's true. Many trials, Paul tells us, we enter the kingdom of God. And so through various trials, these griefs come, this heaviness comes because God's teaching us about faith. So that, in order that, the tested genuineness of your faith might be revealed. This is where I've gone too long already. You're very patient. You know, this is a bad thing because I'm sitting down. <laughs> if I was standing up, I'd just collapse. <laughs> no, no. Then you could carry me off and said we're done with it. But now you've got to put up with me for the rest of the time. So we come to verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that. This is called a henna cloth. Okay? Remember those henna cloths. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the proving or the testing of your faith. Now, we have to take a moment and understand what Peter is really saying. And this is where good old Robert Layton really helped me. We think of testing as having a pass-fail dimension. You pass or fail geometry. 
<laughs> I was being geometry too, forget. Uh, you know, you, you see the National Spelling Bee. And here are these middle schoolers, and they have memorized tens of thousands of words. And they get up there and they they miss one letter. One letter, and they're eliminated. That's it. They've worked for a whole year, and they miss one letter. That's gone. And maybe you have that sense that that's how God is going to look at you. I used to I used to think about that prayer. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. And I said, Oh, God, give me faith so that I don't die. You know, without any faith. Or something happened to me, and I don't, I die, and my faith is shrunk, it's, and it's no bigger than a walnut. You know, and, and I thought of the, the Gary Larson cartoon. Excuse me for this. There's a Gary Larson cartoon that I loved. Man appeared before St. Peter, not theologically good. He appeared before St. Peter, and he says one question to get into heaven. If you miss it, you go to hell. A train leaves Chicago. 43 miles an hour. Another train leaves New York. Leaving 71 miles an hour. At what point? And the man, <laughs> the man starts looking down. That's, that's, he's lost it. We think that that's what God means. That's not what God means here. God means that the tests in our lives reveal what he's already put there. The tests in our lives reveal what God's already planted in our hearts. Because where does faith come from? Is faith something you create? Is faith something you work up and you say, God, here it is? I finally believe. That's what I used to think. I told my roommate one time in college, don't try and dissuade me from believing the Bible because I'm trying to work up enough faith to believe it. And that's how we think, isn't it? But Peter is talking about faith that God has put in us in the first place being shown through the trials through the difficulties and the afflictions that come into our lives. And that's why I think he uses the imagery of gold. You know, the prospector comes into town, and he's got a bag of rocks, and he takes those rocks to the assayer's office, and the assayer looks at them, and he you know, he chips off some things and he puts some stuff in his scales and he tests it with fire and so forth. And he says, yep, you got gold here. Or he says, nope, I'm sorry, you've got iron pyrites, fool's gold. You don't have anything. We have to have the circumstances of our lives reveal what God has done in our lives, what God has already 
placed in our lives. The assayer is revealing what's already there. He's not putting it there. He's taking what the what the old prospector gives him, and he's just showing what's there. God's showing what he has already done. Faith is a gift of God. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. God does it so that he might be glorified. God is crowning his own work in us through the life circumstances. When we're crying out to him and laying hold of him, this is the work of God being revealed in us. The Holy Spirit is at work. Now, that gold doesn't come out of the ground all clean and ready to be made into a ring, does it? It's got kind of dirt and other bin rolls, and they put it in smelters, and they start skinning, and they skin, and they skin, and they skin, and they tirelessly remove it. The metallurgist does everything necessary to get the gold to 100%, or at least 99%, pure gold. That's what he's looking for. And he's looking for it when he can look in the molten gold and see his face reflected. That's how he knows it's pure gold. This is what God's doing in your life, brothers and sisters. God's bringing afflictions into your life, causing you to be dependent on him, revealing his work in your life, so that he might, in your life, have Jesus Christ reflected. Jesus Christ be seen in your life by your responding in Christ-like ways to the difficulties and trials of your life. That's what God does in our lives. The goals we have in our lives are not there to defeat us. They're not to make us wonder, am I no good? Am I just such a lousy Christian? God could never love me. They're to drive us to Christ. <coughs> Every time you feel like you've got no faith, that's why you come to Christ. That's why you say, this is why I need you, Lord Jesus, because I don't even have the power to hold on to you. The old saying is, a weak Faith takes hold of a strong Christ, isn't it? My weak faith has to turn to Christ in all his strength to save me in every way. From my weak faith, my weak repentance, my weak obedience, I need complete salvation. I need a Savior who will so work in me that I'm holding on to him and he's being glorified as anything in my life comes to bring glory to God. And people say, how do you do it? And I say, it's God who's doing it. Not me. It's God who's at work in my life. Not me. 
If I show patience, if I show fortitude, if I show joy, it's because God's done it. He's crowning his work, glorifying himself in my life if he does that. You know, Job came to that place in his life after he went through so much. He said, but he, God, knows the way that I go. And when he has tried me, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23.10. That's what he does. He tries us that we might come forth as gold. I don't know whether this fits, but I'm the preacher, so I get to put in here what I like. I love the, one of the new Giddy hymns. I mentioned these verses at my brother's funeral. And I cried then, so I may cry now. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me. So, He will hold me fast. It's going to result in praise and glory and honor. Not to us, but to Jesus. When he says, Here, Father, are the children you've given to me. I've lost none of them. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, it's because you will hold us fast and we have joy in the midst of trial that we don't abandon the faith, we don't give up, we are held that you might receive praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We come to you now as your people in the midst of trials. Everybody here faces trials. I don't know where face trials, whether it's deployment, long deployment, years long deployment, or job situations, our family members and friends going through situations, surgery, uncertain diagnoses, and all the rest. We come to you, Lord, in the midst of all these and ask that you be with us to glorify yourself and help us through them so that you might receive praise and glory and honor. And we would rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.